Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 120. This week, Carl and I disagree on the trolley problem, using code for home automation, and Jason has a... This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics, providing tools and solutions to accelerate design, development, insights, and collaboration for any organization. This week we have nobody. Okay, well, that's a lie. We have Carl and Jason. <laughs> it's all about us this week. Not all so about Carl- us. Yeah, yeah. So, but Carl thought it would be a good idea just to have an episode with just him and I, and we could talk about stuff that was on our mind. We've done this before, uh, but it ca- apparently Carl has nothing on his mind, so it's mostly just the stuff I came up with. So we'll just have discussions around that. Yeah, I might have a thing or two to bring up, but we'll oh, we'll, we'll okay. see how this show goes. Yeah. But uh, see, the other thing this episode is about is Infragistics and their ultimate license winner yep. this week. Uh, this week we picked somebody who commented on the webpage on msdevshow.com. Um, he was commenting on the first that conference episode that we had uh, for 2016 because we also did 2015 as well. He said, "Great job, Carl. Really enjoy the conference episodes and getting to hear from uh, multiple points of view." You're, I'll actually cut some of this off. Um, yeah. Uh, and multiple technologies. Your interviews are always interesting. Well, I picked him for a couple of reasons. One, it was good feedback, and two, because he said something good about me. So, if you would like your name mentioned, and to win an infragistic ultimate license like Big Kahuna, you can uh, email us at feedback at msdevshow.com. You can uh, leave feedback on Stitcher, YouTube, and we really like these five-star iTunes reviews as well. Okay. And thank you for everybody, for our entire audience, for listening to me and uh, and not mentioning to Carl what I did in the first video <laughs> uh, for that conference. And I don't think Carl's watched it. No, I have not no. watched the video. And now he's really confused. <laughs> Although I think, I think you did tell me. Did you splice in? A, no. No, you didn't? Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe I mentioned something, but yeah, I, for the most part, I didn't say anything. So... Anyway, so thank you guys. You guys are awesome. Uh, <laughs> that's going to bug Carl the whole episode. All right, so, so, so now we need to take a time out so I can watch that apparently. No, no, just you can watch it afterward. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's just pretty funny. Um, it has nothing to do with you. I just uh, um, I just told everybody not to mention anything to you because I just put a whole bunch of stupid stuff in there. Okay, so let's jump into the news. So we have tons and tons of news and st- cool stuff to cover this week. So uh, so let's just dive in here. So the first one here, how to ditch Chrome's new material design and get the old look back. So I guess, first of all, like I got this update the one day on one of my computers and not another one. And I was like, what the heck is going on? So I sent, uh, I sent you a message and I'm like, how the heck do I fix this? And, and, and the, well, uh, the first thing you noticed yeah. is like, uh, they're both on the same version, except this version oh, ends, yeah, that was the thing. ends with an yeah. M and this yeah. one doesn't. So I was looking up uh, a few things and noticed that one of them with the M meant that you have material design. And that was also the one that was bugging you. Cause it looked different. Well, no. So it, just the fact that they were different, what was, was what was bugging me. Mm-hmm. Right. So I actually really don't have a preference here. In fact, what I did on the other machine is, is I actually opted into the material design. Um, and it's just one of those things where you have to get used to it. I think, uh, maybe you have a more polarizing opinion. I, I think that, uh, for my opinion here. So if you go in, 
to the article that we'll have in the show notes. They'll tell you how to either opt in or opt out of this feature mm-hmm. if you want. So if you're not sure what we're talking about, it also shows pictures uh, comparing and contrasting the one with and one without material design. Um, the thing that I have a problem with is it just looks like it's not quite completed yet. And that's because it's not. It's not completed yet. So some of the things just don't seem quite as polished with the material design version. Uh, my biggest problem is how the how the tabs look and how the new tab button looks up there. It just it yeah, just the tabs needs a, are pretty it, it needs pretty a, funky. It needs a little yeah. bit of polishing yet. So and they and they do keep tweaking it. So like the folders themselves, like now they have rounded corners. Um, and I think they're a little bit tighter in like the gutters. Uh, yeah, the tabs are um, themselves have kind of a a square, more squarish corner. So I don't know that I think they're just playing around. It's just kind of interesting that they are just testing on, on their, uh, you know, basically on users. But the thing is like, I, I don't know how they get any feedback on it because it's great, you know, rolling this out to a certain percentage. I don't know if they're just looking for bugs, but you know, it's not like they asked me to vote on which one I like better. So well, they, the fact that, I don't know. the fact that you enabled it or disabled it is enough to, oh, give yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe if they get telemetry on that. Anyway, yeah, like Carl said, the the page shows the two different uh, types. Uh, they'll show you what what they both look like, so you can figure out if you have the old or the new. If you were just if you notice that in your browser and you're like, "What the heck is going on?" Uh, well, now you know. Go to the the show notes at msdevshow.com and take a look, um, and you can also see how to turn it on and off. And, and like you said, when it comes to a lot of these design things, you know, a lot of people like to freak out when they initially happen. So I've actually been yeah. a lot better about like not voicing too much like opinion unless there's something that's yeah just really hard to use because i mean i remember when uh apple on their most recent i think ios 7 when they did that big change to the their flat design everybody just flipped their lid about that and you know what most people are okay with it you know there's a few that you know yeah. want to go back doesn't register anymore but you get used to some of these new designs and eventually you look at it and like wow that's old yeah same with like the ribbon in office. Heck, I remember if you remember Outlook used to have a different uh, layout. The emails were at the top and the reading pane was at the bottom. And a coworker of mine, he's just like, what is what is with these idiots? Like, why would they put the reading pane on the right? And like he he was just so adamant that this was just like the worst thing in the world. And now I like I have a hard time picturing the way that it used to be. So. Yeah, I don't know. Live with it for a while. See if it if you get used to it. If after, you know, two weeks you're just like, okay, this is still hurting my eyes, then you know, whatever, then maybe switch it. Okay, happy tenth birthday, Pandoc. So Woo-hoo! Pandoc is a tool that we've had as our tip of the week uh before. It's a it's a tool, a command line PowerShell tool that you can use to convert from one kind of document to another. It's super handy and it's actually how we get the show notes done, to be honest. I rely on this every week. I've used this at work and a bunch of other places. And I, I knew it's been around for a while, but I didn't know it's been 10 years old. So uh, this is, to me, a, a pretty successful open source project. And uh, I was reading along in some of the comments to find out just so, what some of the history was. Um, you know, uh, one of the other things I didn't realize is it's written in, in the back end entirely in Haskell. Yeah, so it's pretty wild. So I just yeah. wanted to say a shout out to... Uh, the maintainers for this project. It's pretty awesome. It's something we use. And um, I'm sure if you think about, you know, if you have kind of a document that you need to convert into another document, that happens a little bit more often than you want. You might want, might be able to automate it. And this is the, this is the universal converter. Yep. 
Very cool. Okay. Google is working on a new operating system called Fuchsia. So Carl, are we just totally guessing now why they're doing this? Have they indicated at all why they're doing this? So I, I don't think that I've heard anything about any, this is exactly why it's here and what it's for, but okay. this is a, a new operating system, not based on Android, not based on Linux, not based on Java or any of those things that Google's kind of gotten in trouble for in the past. Yeah. So it's also uh, an operating system that will work on mobile, but it'll also be able to handle, you know, full desktop resources and potentially even server resources. So if you have a computer that has tons of memory, has tons of applications you might need to switch between, it's optimized for that. But also at the same time, if you have something resource constraint, it looks like it'll be able to handle that too. And if, yeah. if we kind of look at that, you know, with all the, like I said, with all the trouble that Google has been in the past with just litigations and lawsuits, not that they've necessarily done anything wrong. I don't want to point fingers, even though sometimes I can get finger pointing uh, happy at uh, Google. Um, you know, this is to me would be a smart move if they can transition Chrome OS and Android to this Fuchsia OS. Uh, it's yeah. it's also kind of the model that Windows is, has taken. They moved to one core and now yeah. all of their platforms are based on that. So, um, you know, it's not unprecedented to do a, a a move like this either. Yeah. I mean, when you don't have any baggage and you're just creating something brand new, um, you know, the, there's every possibility like in, in the future. Right. Um, what's interesting, though, with, with doing something like this and, and my big concern would be that, um, you know, you Linux and Windows and all these other operating systems have been around for so long. And, and you could look at them and say, oh, they have all these, ug- these ugly things in them and hacks and things like that. Some of those should just get removed. Um, you know, so it's, it's one of those things too, where you're like, if it, if it ain't broke, don't, don't, you know, don't touch it. So, you know, I, I just worry like there, there's going to be all these like missing pieces, right? You're going to try it on this exotic piece of hardware or whatever. You know, again, I don't, we don't know what their focus is, if it's going to be on specialized hardware or, or what that's going to look like, but it doesn't have like 20 years of experience necessarily baked in like windows and Linux and some of these other operating, even, you know, Unix and, um, you know, even iOS and things like that are based on Unix. So, you know, same, same thing, right. Where they, they just have that history in there built in, which is a blessing and a curse, but I worry in this case, they don't have the curse, but they also don't have the blessing. So um, I don't know if they if they start out sort of specialized with what they're with their, what they're trying to do. It sounds like it could be on, uh, you know, mobile phones. It could be on their on hub router or IOT devices. And then maybe they expand it out to other device types. That could be a good approach to avoid that whole issue. Yeah. But the other thing that's actually, you know, I find kind of curious is. How will people who are already in like the Android ecosystem take to something like this? You know, how easily can they convert all of their existing apps and app libraries on the store over? And, you know, if they don't have an answer for that, that could be very devastating to, to people who have those kind of devices and could make them switch. Well, I would, I would hope that they would. Oh, I would hope so too. And I, I would think that <laughs> they haven't yeah. have that, but yeah. Um, you know, it, it's one thing that it users are finicky. It's one thing that, you know, I've kind of noticed throughout the years is it doesn't take much for a group of people or even just, you know, you get a few people in the leader positions or the thought leader positions to question it. And all of a sudden everybody else is jumping off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll see. So right now we're just, uh, we're just totally guessing and it's open source, right? So we have a, we'll have a link to the, well, uh, it's, it's not entirely open source, but there's a mirror of the source on GitHub. 
So you can okay. you, so you can see what's going on. So it's so that source is open. So it, you you can read it and you can do stuff with it. So it's not it's not developed as an open source project, Correct. but the source is open. <laughs> okay, good distinction. Uh, okay, Microsoft to drop re- Azure Remote App in favor of Citrix virtualization technology. So fortunately, like I haven't I haven't asked about the inside story on this, so I can actually comment on this because <laughs> if I knew the inside story, then I might have different comments. Um, but yeah, re- remote app is you basically have a year to move off of it. And uh, if you want a remote app type scenario, then you need to use Citrix. And I guess I should explain what that is. So, you know, we obviously have things like remote desktop where you can, uh, you know, access a, another computer over a super high performance remote connection. Um, and these days, like, it's just, it's crazy how good the performance is. I mean, it's so optimized that if you have like a, if you're dragging a window around, like it's, it, it hardly takes any bandwidth to transmit around like that, that move. And then if you're playing a video, like it knows that part of the screen um, is a video and we'll actually stream it with a different codec. Um, it's amazing. I'm actually able to, you know, remotely like from, from a hotel or something RDP into my home computer and I can actually watch a video over it. That's it's amazing. But this, um, this takes it one step further and you, yeah. you're not RDPing the whole operating system, the whole desktop. Right. You're, you're just RDPing that application in the window contents. Exactly. So the, the cool thing is that you can also do it from iPad. You can do it from wherever you can do it on OS 10. So you basically are remoting a single application on your screen, but you get all the RDP benefits. Um, so anyway, remote app, it was, um, a lot of people were pretty attached to it. It was kind of a hassle because you, you know, this thing had to be able to scale up and down and there were, there were just some, some challenges around that. I don't, I don't think that's why it would be deprecated though. I'm guessing there's a couple reasons. And one is probably because, you know, Microsoft and Citrix are partners. So this could be, you know, Hey, you guys are a good partner. Um, you know, we'll, why are we competing in this space? It just seems silly at this point. And then the other thing would just be like a, from a technological perspective, like if Citrix is just killing it in this technology, just doing an amazing job, then why not just say, you know what, what, you know, why are we both putting effort into, into trying to, uh, to do this? We'll just help you make your product great. Um, and, and, you know, so that, that could be some of the motivation. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I definitely don't have any insight into what the numbers were. Um, you know, maybe they're just relatively speaking, maybe many people weren't using remote app. I, I don't know. So I'm, again, I'm just, I'm totally speculating. Yeah. So there was a kind of a follow-up article to this by somebody who's obviously a remote app fan, uh, Jeff, yeah. Jeff Duncan. And he kind of had seven reasons why remote app retirement is bad. Um, he said it's bad for small businesses, you know, uh, small businesses, they don't have the it staff. This is a a great way to shift their apps up into Azure and kind of just kind of depend upon Microsoft more, uh, to, you know, going with Microsoft's visions, you know, mobile first cloud first, this, this technology really fit that. Um, and basically his third one was revenue. He says, we make software, we don't babysit servers. And that's kind of what this did. It allowed you to make software and put it up there and, you know, basically pay Microsoft to do all the hosting and stuff for us. So essentially take our money. Uh, yeah. And I'm going to skip down a little bit. Uh, remote app was too young and it hasn't been out very long. Um, yeah. Sec- uh, number six, security. Security's hard. Um, but all of this stuff, all the stuff lived on the server. We didn't actually access any of this stuff. So if somebody's device got uh, taken, um, there's nothing really to steal. Because, right. Um, and one that he didn't mention on here. Now, of course, now that I mentioned that, uh, there's something I was going to add. Oh, I 
whoever's used Citrix apps in the past, to me, it's mm-hmm. kind of like installing the Java framework. It's just something you do because you have to, but it makes your computer <laughs> feel all icky afterwards. Yeah. Um, now, granted, that's an opinion of mine, but you know, I've I've had a lot of uh, issues with the Citrix software. So to me, them saying just use Citrix isn't a happy feeling. Yeah. Well, and that's understandable. I, I just, you know, uh, we're not, we haven't really evaluated both technologies either. So yeah. I guess I don't, I don't want to jump to any big conclusions. I mean, they just might've been just totally kicking ass and <laughs> maybe they got something yeah. <laughs> in the lineup. That's really like, yeah, remote app wasn't yeah. going to compete against that. Yeah, exactly. I, I really don't know. And I don't, they could be doing their backend stuff on, on Azure. So again, you know, it's like, why, why have two companies doing the exact same thing uh, when, you know, they're just better together. I don't know. So um, we'll just have to wait and see kind of how that plays out. Um, you know, I feel bad for anybody who was uh, on the the remote app train. Um, yeah. I mean, it's never easy for anybody, but it was just, I'm sure that was a really hard decision, but it was something that probably had to be done. Okay, Alphabet learns that change isn't as easy as ABC. That's a, a very clever clickbaity title. But <laughs> uh, uh, so about a year ago, Google renamed its, uh, not renamed, but created a, a holding company for all of its subsidiaries called Alphabet. And really the founders moved up to that company and uh, placed other people in charge as CEOs of the several other companies, including Google.com and a few of the others. And that happened about a year ago. And this is kind of like, where is Google now? How is it doing? Has this really benefited or changed Google in any substantial way? And the answer is things seem to be kind of going as they were beforehand. Uh, Google's making almost all the money uh, and it's making it almost entirely on ads and everybody else is spending money. Yeah. The the most interesting thing, I mean, they... I, I had this feeling that they, one of their, and I, they might've even stated this was that they were splitting these out so that, um, you know, from a financial perspective, you could kind of see like, here are the money makers and here are the things that aren't making money. But you know, there, there's a, a big downside to that as well. I mean, we know that things like Xbox didn't make money forever mm-hmm. and now, and Bing. now it actually does. It's one of those. Yeah. And Bing was another one. Those are the types of things where you have to make this investment where you know that you might not get paid for a decade and wall street does not like those types of things. You know, they want you to make money in 90 days, not in 10 years. So Google was in a position where they could hide all of those things and be like, no, 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 we're totally making lots of money in the next 90 days. And they, they were totally truthful in that. And then 10 years, they could be like, Oh, you know, this one thing. Yeah. By the way, that's been losing money for 10 years, but it's cool now. Cause now it's making money. Um, so now, now they're, I mean, they, they've just, they've become more transparent, but um, yeah, I mean, this could just really hurt them, I would think, because uh, they're going to get pressure from investors to, you know, shut down project X, Y and Z. Uh, you like that? Um, <laughs> because because, you know, people say, well, hey, these things aren't profitable, even if Google has a lot of confidence in it and maybe it's the right thing to do. Um, yeah, I don't know. This It just seems like this is going to uh, blow up in their face at some point or not. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, yeah. what is it like nine out of 10 businesses yeah. fail, right? But so nine of their businesses are going to fail. <laughs> so, you know, while we did talk about a lot of the stuff did get spun out, uh, there's yeah. a lot of stuff that's still hidden in the Google, Google corporation, such as yeah. YouTube, uh, Android, Chrome, uh, e- even some mobile research divisions. So there's, yeah. there's still a lot that's within that core Google thing that aren't as transparent. So um, they're still playing the game. Still playing the game, man. Uh, okay. Anything else on that no. one? Okay. Uh, y Combinator tech stacks. Yeah. So I, I like, uh, 
uh, there's a, a website called madewith.com. So you can pretty much type in like any other website and it'll tell you like what their tech stack is. And I find it really useful to just see, hey, you know, what's going on, what's popular or, you know, just being curious on, on a developer side. And Y Combinator is known for, you know, bringing up these uh, startups and, you know, helping them grow. So, you know, what is the last, you know, couple hundred startups that Y Combinator has had? What, what kind of tech stacks do they use for hosting, analytics, email, and all that stuff? And there's some things that are kind of obvious and a few other things that, you know, you know, yeah. were a little bit surprising. So, you know, maybe a few of the obvious things is like, I think 99% of them all use Gmail and Google Analytics. No, no, yeah, nine, well, 97, well, yeah, sure. Um, but breaking those out, 97% use Gmail, uh, which is, wow. I mean, that's 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 a trend right there. <laughs> that's really interesting. Um, 55% use AWS, 13 use Cloudflare, 6% use Rackspace. Uh, it's really disappointing that uh, you know Azure did not make the well, list. Well, if you look at that too, um, they didn't make the list, but there's also a big gap in numbers like, there's room yeah. for Azure to have some space in there. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could be other and it could be the second biggest. <laughs> um, I, you know, the thing is, though, uh, Microsoft always throws out some stats, you know, every once in a while. Uh, Satya does and, and, and other things. So, you know, a lot of there are there is a lot of startup activity on Azure. But obviously, whenever you look in this particular niche, uh, it's it's not really a, a big thing. But, but uh, like which a, is just disappointing. But like another thing that, it, you know, you know, we've been told for years that, you know, like a lot of the successful companies do A-B testing. Well, yeah. this says only 20% of Y Combinator startups are using A-B testing. Yep. It's funny. You picked out some of the same things I did. And one of them here, 93% use Optimizely, which I, the reason that that stat stood out to me is I'd never heard of it. But 93% of these companies are using it. So I actually looked around on their website a little bit. Um, this might actually be a good future MS dev show episode, honestly. I mean, if 93% of the Y Combinator companies are using that, um, yeah, then I think we should talk to them. Um, oh, this was another interesting too. Google versus Microsoft, 130 YC sites, uh, advertise on AdWords while 22 use Bing. Um, so a pretty good showing there, in my opinion, by, by Bing, you know, who's mm -hmm. obviously like a kind of a distant second at this point, uh, yet profitable. And even with this heavy Google crowd, um, you still see like, I mean, I think that's a respectable, uh, number, I mean, 22 of those companies using Bing. Yeah. Um, I think that was about it. Um, anything else that you really pulled out? Yeah. Google analytics, like you mentioned was, was just insane. Yeah. Like that's what everybody uses. It's just like no contest. I wonder, are we giving Google like so much da aggregated data there <laughs> from Google analytics? I'm wondering what they use that for. I mean, man, who has a better view of what's going on on the entire internet? Yeah. They have that space just wrapped up. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Should we move on? Mm -hmm. Diversity in tech companies. Yeah, so there there was a a, a little infograph on informationisbeautiful.net just showing kind of the breakdown of male and female and ethnicity amongst the top yeah. tech companies and those were all broken out and then compared them to the top 50 US companies as well as the most female friendly companies. And you know, obviously we're we as a tech industry are kind of behind um we don't have the male female parody, nor do we have the ethnicity parody as, as other industries do. But yeah. where, what I thought was kind of interesting too, is where some of the companies that were doing good in one area 
they were really trailing in the other. Where I looked, I looked at yeah. Pandora. They had forty nine percent females working there, which is great. Yeah. But if you look, they're almost all white. Yeah. <laughs> and some yeah, you're right. and some of the other ones that were doing really good um, with some of the ethnicities, they're doing the worst on the male female. So there's really no company that like has totally yeah. nailed diversity in like every possible yeah. regard. It's always that they they probably focus on one area. And then, and, and it's almost at the expense of, of something else. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look at it, they also compare um, all of these to the U S Congress and tech companies almost match up to like what the U S Congress is 19% female to 80% male. And then just a speckling of the ethnicities. Yeah. Wow, man, the Asians are just killing it here because I love this. They have the, they actually have the U S population What the breakdown is 4% Asian, but Man, you go through the through pretty much every company is uh, you know is is doing really well in that category, mm-hmm. except for HP for some reason. Come on, HP, what's your deal? <laughs> um, yeah, this is great. You know, obviously having having this data out there is is awesome. Um, I think I think a lot of this gets self reported, and I know a lot of people would love to have more detail. Actually, can you click on these? Oh no, you can't. It just makes it bigger. Um, it'd be great to be able to dive into this as well. Um, you know, so that you could just sort of keep exploring this data and, and dive into what, and see what some of the core issues are. So, yeah, but you know, the, the most important thing is not only that we have this, but that people with power can actually act on that and improve the system. Yep. And it's a, it's an awesome visualization. Uh, okay. Ask an intern. The best advice I got from a seven micro seven Microsoft all-stars this summer. This is awesome because I had an intern this summer that was in this group. And actually the first thing you might notice here, and I, I wasn't sure it's funny because they don't, most of the interns, like they don't, they don't talk about this much and I'm not, I'm not sure why. I don't know if they were told not to, but I'm just going to repeat it because it is in here. Um, is that like they're, they, they, they got to do tons of fun stuff. Uh, first of all, which I'm pretty jealous of, um, like a scavenger hunt and, uh, what else was listed here? Um, they get like a concert too. Well, that's the thing. They got a private Ellie Goulding concert uh, in front of the Space Needle. Um, <laughs> and then they all got Surface Books, which wasn't in here. Um, so hopefully I'm not like spilling the beans on that. Uh, I wasn't told to say to not say that, though. But they all got Surface Books. Um, you know, so they they were they, they sure had an awesome experience. And they and they're given a ton of freedom, too. I mean, um, she went through. I love it because she this she's an amazing writer. I mean, this was this is just this is a long th- post. Yeah. And it's amazing. Like, man, this would be another good, good person. So, to have so essentially the, the I think that the topic, what this was is they were recommended to like go out once a week and just have lunch or coffee or something with somebody at Microsoft and just kind of, yeah. you know, get to know them, do a little interview, you know, just get some advice, which is exactly yeah. what you want during an internship. And I think the one thing that wasn't mentioned in here, but I know this is something that me and you, Jason, have really learned throughout doing this episode, uh, doing the podcast is yeah. if you ask people for things, people want to help you. Yeah. And we've found out that we've gotten just tons of support from just everybody, whether it be, you know, somebody helping us with, you know, something technically artist artistically or getting people to be guests on the show. Everybody, you know, for the most part helps if you ask. Yeah. And I, I know that this person was kind of shocked at some of the people that they were able to go out to lunch with. Yeah. And then there's a lot of good stuff in here. Don't assume that everyone is as passionate as you. So it has all the names in here. So that's software developer on office engineering. But, but th- she also got that, to talk that's, to, a, that's actually a really good one because I know I've made that mistake 
uh, before. My first job in the tech industry was absolutely not normal. I had awesome coworkers who had tons of passion and I didn't realize that the rest of the industry wasn't set up like that. We, I mean, we were constantly teaching each other and all, all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I realized that there's a lot of developers out there that they, they treat their job like they're working in a factory. Like they, mm-hmm. they're, they're not into uh, software as a craft. And yeah. that was an you know, eye opener for me. I didn't know what to do with that. Um, when I first came across that. So, you know, realizing that people have different passion levels is sometimes uh, something that you need to be uh, made aware of. Yeah. So we'll let, we'll let the listeners read the rest of these, but I mean, she was able to talk to Chris Capicella. He's pretty approachable. Uh, Scott Hanselman, Hanselman. Uh, let's see. Catherine Harris of technical evangelist for AR and VR. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it's just awesome. Principal program manager of the HoloLens, which that one is kind of interesting too. Cause she's like, well, I couldn't meet him in his office because <laughs> I don't know, you, you need like, you know, it's like the movies you need, like the iris scanner and the, you know, <laughs> the fingerprint and all that kind of stuff. Um, cause of all the top secret stuff, but, uh, really cool. So I recommend reading that. Uh, she'd be a good guest on the show as well. Uh, how to be mediocre and be happy with yourself. So this was, this was, uh, this was kind of an interesting read because it was, it's talking about goals. Like you, you should aspire for greatness, but then I, I, this is the quote right here. Uh, mediocrity as a goal sucks, but as a result is okay. And it's okay to be happy with that. Yeah. I mean, you, a lot of times we hear, especially in our field about like the rockstar programmer or the 10 X developer yeah. or something like that. And one that that is kind of a myth for the most part. I mean, there are some people who are just standouts in the field, but when you hear like places that like we only hire those kinds of people, well, that doesn't happen. You can't sustain that. Um, yeah. Well, and people have pointed out like mathematically, like every company can't hire the top one percent. Uh, <laughs> the the other ninety nine percent would be unemployed. <laughs> yeah, the other ninety nine percent would be unemployed. Yeah, exactly. And and you know sometimes when you see that like, you know, you come to realize like, Hey, I'm not this awesome person, you know, that can get to a person psychologically and, you know, it's just coming around to it. It's like, you know, Hey, I may not have like kicked that butt or I don't know this technology like that person, but you know, I, I kicked some really hard problems this week and you know, I got some stuff done. Yeah. And I've been listening to a lot of James Whitaker recently and and we're going to have, we'll have an episode with him. We're going to have a, an episode with him, live in a bar. We're, we're trying to figure that or trying to line that up. But, uh, you know, he talks about uh, career superpowers and one of his biggest things is to specialize. And I see that all the time. If you can be the whatever person, um, you know, insert, you know, blank, <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever word you want to put in there, if you can be that person, um, you know, you, you can do what you want. So it's not even that you have to be, you know, that's what I struggle with. It's like, okay, I want to be awesome at everything. Well, you can't do that. You have to specialize. And I almost have a job where I'm not allowed to, well, I shouldn't say I'm not allowed to specialize where I'm, I'm expected to know like a little bit about everything, which makes it, you know, it, it just puts a strain on trying to specialize, but, um, yeah, you want to, but, you want but to in that case, your, your specialty is learning at that point. Oh yeah, absolutely. But, but I guess what I'm saying then too, is, you know, on, on, on majority of the things, like it's okay to be mediocre. Um, if you're mediocre at everything or, you know, it, it's, 
yeah, yeah, it, it's just, it's okay. And and I think there is a difference between a goal and, and what you actually do. Um, but you want success can be mediocre. That's the thing we, we treat mediocre as like, as a bad thing, but it could just be average or, or whatever, however you want to define that. So just kind of an interesting thought, uh, self-driving cars don't care about your moral dilemmas. So this one personally just drives me absolutely nuts. So, <laughs> so the, uh, this always comes up whenever you talk about self-driving cars, a car has to make a decision at some point. Should I kill the family of three? Should I kill, you know, these five people that don't have a family, like the bus of elementary kids. Oh yeah, exactly. And, and I was listening to uh, this week in tech and, and I was kind of yelling at my radio cause it was just driving me crazy. Cause like Leo on there, he's like, he's like, no, no, he's like the software doesn't make, it shouldn't make that decision. It should, slam on the brakes and hope for the best, just like a human would. And I'm like, ah, oh, I'm like, you just, you don't get it at all. And it's this, I'm sure developers listening have run into this quite a bit where you're, you're writing some code and you write an if statement and then you have an else. Okay. Or you have a cat, a try catch. And in that else or in that catch, you have to write some code and you go to your boss and you're like, what should the software do in this case? And they go, Oh, don't worry. Like that shouldn't happen. It's like, um, well, in my code, it can, like it can, <laughs> it will, it can happen. So when it happens, then what should I do? You know? So there's the, uh, slamming on the brakes and hoping for the best doesn't make sense. So, I mean, at some point, these self-driving cars, they, they need extreme awareness about what's around them. There's just, there's no choice, right? They have to know just like when you're driving and they'll actually be better. But you know, whenever you're driving, you're looking in front of you, you have a, you have an idea of everything that's in front of you. I always keep track of everything that's around me, but the computer in your car will know every, it will know every detail about what's going on in all the vehicles around you, you know, exact distances, all of this. So when something happens, you know, like a, a bus falls from the overpass and you have to turn left or you have to turn right the car is going to have to make a decision there. And sure, you have other choices, slam on the brakes, but the car at that point, and this is what I I don't think Leo understood. If you slam on the brakes and hope for the best, the car knows before it puts on the brakes, you will just die and you're going to kill half the people on the bus. Like it knows that as a hundred percent certainty so, based on that information. So here's where I'm going to disagree with you to a point. So okay. the the point is, is if it, if it gets to the part where it's like, you know, kill the, kill the baby in the baby stroller or the grandmother, you know, yeah. that, that means that it wasn't able to do its job a few seconds beforehand. It made a mistake beforehand. No, a bus just fell off the overpass, man. I, well, I know what the article, so the article yeah, says that yeah. the article, I think so, totally skirts the issue. Well, if, if a bus falls off an overpass, there's, there's nothing that anything can do, no matter what kind of advance. No, what I'm, no, what I'm saying is you can turn left or you can turn right. Well, I'm just saying it. What using your scenario, you can always yeah. take it one step further. You can always take it. Well, you know, I'm going to throw this other condition on here that would make it impossible. I mean, you, yeah. you're not, and we have to make a decision. Is my well, point? No. So where I was going to go uh, sure. beyond that go is there gets to be a point where one, you can't make that decision. You, you know, you you can throw enough at <laughs> it where something is going to be inevitable at some point. But but sure. at the other point, but, too, well, that's not that's not what I'm talking about. But go ahead. But the other thing is too is like a lot of times when you get into those spots too, like, all right, I, I realize that something's going to happen and no matter what happens, I have to make a decision between ruining this and ruining that. And by the time it actually, you get to that point and you have to calculate all these other things. One, we don't have the sensors with the data inflow to do that, nor will we get those in any time soon. 
And by the time that you actually do make that calculation, it's probably beyond that point anyways. Mm, okay. So he, here's my point. I'm going to say it really succinctly. There, there will be a car at a certain point, And I'm just going to say that there's going to be at least one, because I know there'll be more than one, mm. but there will be at least one that gets put into a situation where it has two choices. It's able to pick one of those choices. It is under its control and it has to make a decision like that. It will happen to say that that will never happen. I think is silly. So it will happen and we have to write code to deal with that. All right. You've made your thing. <laughs> right. So I, I think it's, I think that point, I, I get what you're saying. And, and, and I, and the problem I have with most people talking about this is they keep avoiding the issue. They keep saying, oh, well, it, most of the time this will happen. I get it. I get it. This is in the, this is in the, 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 the catch mm-hmm. or the else, you know, if nothing we can do, then do this else, <laughs> you know, else means, okay, we have a choice. So in our else, like we have to write some code. Like if we don't write code, the car, I don't know, I guess it's just going to like turn off, which, you know, then it'll just say like, oh, I'm going to kill you. You know, cause again, the bus fell off the overpass and I don't know, there's the, it's a one lane road and we have, you know, the baby in a carriage over here pushed by the mom. And over here we have, you know, dad playing with his son, you know, like we, we know what the car knows exactly what's going on. It's got to turn left or right or kill the, you know, or, or kill you know, 10 people. Well, the 10 people seems horrible. So now we're based on another decision and I don't know, I think it's going to be like iRobot, you know, the, the robot jumped into the water it, it, it did, you know, that robot said, Oh, you have a, what was it? You have a 90% chance of survival. And the two people that were in that car, they only had a 20% chance of survival. Even there were two of them, you know, you had a 90% chance. So I saved you, you know, I think that's the way it's going to, that's what's going to end up happening. And that's going to be tough. So we have Jason's opinion. And then we have what the article <laughs> said uh, that interviewed a few people who are working at Google on these cars. So who should know more than me, by the way, <laughs> well, their point is they've never come across that situation and they believe that it's if they got into that situation, that's because they screwed up ahead of time. I just I just don't I don't get that. Like they really think that if if they ever have a choice, that it will be they they there would have been sensor data leading up to it and they wrote bad code. Like really? That's why I think the article I think is just total garbage. That's my opinion. So I'd like to have some feedback though. If you guys want to send in some emails, um, I'd like to hear your take on it, but I just, I just think that's, that's crazy. Of course we want it to be rare. Like we know that right now, what is it? 40,000 people a year in the U S die in car accidents. Like we want that to be, you know, 10, right. And it's going to be like extremely fluke accidents. Like an airplane is going to crash on your car. Like I get that. (laughs) So people are still going to die and there's nothing you can do about that. But, um, you know, you're, they're going to be in this situation. So anyway, I won't, uh, I won't talk about it to death, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. Infragistics, ultimate UX and UI tools and enterprise mobility solutions, share plus and report plus enable high performance apps on any device, faster data insights, simplified collaboration and market leading security, all backed by comprehensive support. With Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Development Toolkit, you can ensure mission-critical applications delivering a superior user experience on the desktop, web, and native device environments for iOS and Android. With the latest BI tools, wow your users with dashboards providing the data insights that they need when and where they need it, all at a low total cost of ownership. Try it today. 
Download a free trial at Infragistics.com and follow them for the latest updates in UX and UI development, reporting, and collaboration at Infragistics on Twitter. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you will get a free copy of Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Toolset. Let's see here. What do we got? Machine learning meets uh, ketosis. How to effectively lose weight. This was fascinating. This was really this was cool. So awesome. and, and part of this is, is I'm constantly fascinated by machine learning because I, I don't understand it. But I, I yeah. constantly get, you know, a little bit more and a little bit more. And I understand it better every time that I'm presented with something mm-hmm. new. And what was really cool is what this guy did with the project is he essentially just recorded everything that he did and everything that he ate. It wasn't like... If you look at it, it wasn't like I had one eighth cup of cottage cheese or something like that. Yeah. But he just said like cottage cheese, good sleep or slept bad. I mean, it was just real high level. Yeah. This isn't like drop down list. This is just free form, just type. And um, he let he wrote a machine learning uh, to just kind of go over. And one of the other things he, he uh, did is record his weight every day. And it kind of associated all these different inputs with whether he gained or lost weight over that period. And over time it was able to, you know, give him a bunch of recommendations based upon what he put in. And some of them really kind of, in in my opinion, having looked at some of these like low carb paleo, you know, all these kind of newer diets really giving them a little bit more credence because they were saying when he ate things that were higher in fat and he got sleep and he did exercise and he stayed away from low carb or he stayed away from carbs. He tended to lose weight. And when he started eating sweets and things that were very carby or missed sleep, then he started gaining weight. And it really just kind of, you know, for him, he said this wasn't, you know, very extensive, but, um, you know, he was able to see a lot of associations that he's been able to kind of, you know, take that advice, live it personally and get more feedback in through the system. So this was really, really cool. I think the graph is the most telling, right? So he actually basically, um, sorted, uh, each, each, you know, label and how much weight, I shouldn't say how much, but how, how much of a correlation there was on weight loss. So sleep was by far the biggest factor. Mm-hmm. And then there, then like number two was like egg, <laughs> <Everybody> <laughs> eggs, you know, and then olive oil, olives. It was just really interesting. And then weight gain, like the worst one was no sleep and then bagel, meatball, brownie, pizza. Like you could say like, oh, well, of course, but this is awesome. I mean, this is like mathematical yeah. machine learning and associating these things together. And, and I know you're a fan of this, but uh, you know, he meant, he mentioned, he noticed like on the days that he skipped breakfast, that all of a sudden got a high correlation with sleep loss or uh, weight loss. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Whenever you're fasting, uh, let's get to the rest of the news. If that's all right. Um, I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to jump into some stuff and actually I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to skip, uh, I'm going to skip a couple of these things. So let, I want to just talk, let's talk about two big things. So one of them is going to be home automation. The other will be like travel tips. Um, so those are my two big categories. So the first one, so I've been, I've been playing around with this cause I know on the show we've talked about IOT and home automation and, um, I've always bought like a whole bunch of stuff and, and it's never really done anything useful for me. And I was just getting to this level of frustration because in my new house here, like we don't have air conditioning cause the, the weather out here in Seattle is a little bit different. Um, but this, you still get like um, infrequent hot days out here. And we have a two story house. And of course all the bedrooms are on the top story and all the heat goes upstairs and I want to be able to sleep good. <laughs> and we have, we actually have like a, 
I wouldn't call it a whole house fan, but we have a fan upstairs. It turns out it's actually like a bathroom fan in the hallway that helps vent out um, air. And it was just on this dumb timer. I think it would run from like 7 to 10 p.m. and then would run from like 4 to 7 p.m. in the morning. Um, And I was like, okay, there's got to be a better way to do this. Like, I don't want this running when it doesn't make sense. So I know I was I was chatting with you guys for a little bit and um, I I was like looking for a sophisticated rule engine where I could do these things and just everything really fell short because I I wanted it to be something that was simple, yet I could get like, you know, create like super complex rules. And I really wanted to be able to do this in code. So I have a, I have a smart things hub and uh, you can buy these things. I think they're a hundred bucks and it's got like Bluetooth and uh, I don't know if it has Bluetooth actually, but it's got Zigbee, you know, it, um, uh, it'll, it'll connect to all your devices basically. And you can, you can buy all these off the shelf devices like motion sensors and uh, door brake sensors and alarms and stuff like that and kind of piece together all these things. Uh, but again, you know, it's just, I was never able to set up very, anything very sophisticated. It used to be the most complicated rule I had was when this motion sensor sees motion, like turn on this light and it would stop working at some point. It was just really <laughs> frustrating. <laughs> so here, here's what I did. So smart things has this concept of a smart app and a smart app, um, is a, um, it, it's basically you, you end up writing code and you have a number of inputs in it and then you have logic that you run. And I'm like, okay, this is what I'm looking for. And, you know, I had some misfires, but, but this was exactly what I was looking for. So I actually created some code and it's nice because you go in and you actually say, Hey, I want, I want you to give me, you know, for the whole house fan, um, I wanted to know two different temperature sensors, right? I, I wanted a temperature sensor that represented the inside of my house, one that represented the outside. And then I had a fan that I wanted to control, but you don't really want to bind to those specific devices. So what you do is you define inputs and you define them through their characteristics. So if you look at my code, it, it makes a lot more sense, but basically you select those sensors as inputs and then you specify which fan you want to control. So, now, so, so how does this work? I mean, you, you mentioned code, you mentioned an app, you mentioned your stuff. So, yep. so is there an app? Do I download that? How do I get my code into that? app? I mean, how, Yeah. Great question. Great question. So there's, there's two different pieces of this. So first of all, first of all, like all of this runs on their infrastructure, but it uses their, your hardware. And I'm not sure exactly how all of those, you know, how all of that complexity works. And the reality is it doesn't really matter. You don't have to worry about it too much. Um, but the way that you actually do this, there, there is an app for your phone, but the app for your phone is really for like checking device data. Like I can tell what the temperature sensor values are and all that good stuff, but for doing anything kind of real hardcore, as far as code, you can't do any of that on your app. So, uh, what you do there's a, there's basically, they have like a graph API that you access. Um, it's something like api.something.smartthings.com. Um, if you go out there and, and, you know, you go to the developer section and their documentation, like it's pretty easy to find that, that URL. And as long as you have a smart things account, I think you could do this, even if you don't have smart things. Um, I don't think it requires a hub, but I'm not sure about that. Um, so you go out there and, and you basically create one of these things and they're, they're essentially Java code. They're, they're in something called groovy, which I really wasn't familiar with. Um, but it's, you know, I don't know, it's code. So whatever it's, it's, you know, a, a C based language. So I, I haven't had any issues with it, but, um, yeah, I mean, they have a syntax for defining the things that go in and you basically do it on this online page. You paste it into this big editor, uh, you, you save it, you publish it. And then what's cool about it is you can actually, um, 
instead of using real sensors, you can use simulated sensors. So you can sit there and actually modify temperatures and turn things on and off. And what's cool is it's all event driven. So basically anytime one of those temperature sensor changes for me, I, I trigger my script again. Um, so my first script is the one for running the house fan. So that script, like I said, it takes the indoor temperature, takes the outdoor temperature. If the outdoor temperature is below the, um, the indoor temperature it, um, in the summer, it says it actually, this one, sorry, this one was for the house fan. That was one that I, that was actually one of the few scripts that I found that I was able to download. So let's talk about a different one. One that's probably even simpler. So I have another one for equalizing the temperature in my house. So I have, you know, two different floors. I have, uh, my thermostat is downstairs. So that is one temperature sensor. I actually have a motion sensor upstairs and the motion sensor from smart things actually doubles as a temperature sensor. So if the temperature is, is uh, different between those two sensors by more than five degrees, and I actually have it set up as configurable, it will then, um, and it checks every time one of those temperature changes, my code gets called to, to run that, you know, do that little math formula. Then it turns on the furnace fan to help equalize the house temperature. So if it's really hot upstairs and cold downstairs, it tries to equal those things out. Um, and the code is actually incredibly simple once you get used to it. So these are groovy files that you're writing? Yeah, they're groovy files. Yep. And again, I have them right on on, uh, on GitHub. So for those who aren't uh, familiar, what is Groovy? Well, it's like it's like a Java type thing. I I don't know. It's like a scripting language for Java. Uh, that's about all I know <laughs> about it. But you you don't have to know Groovy. You don't have to know Java. I didn't know either of those things really. Um, and I was able to write one of these scripts. And hopefully, like my script will will help you. If you wanted to create one of these things, you can actually just paste it in there, change the name and some of the other things on your on your API dashboard, and just save it out there. And then once you you know just saving it out there, like it it just runs then, um, and and it just it just keeps going. And what's nice is you're not like, you don't have to go out there and find like a cloud provider and like run your code. I played around with Azure functions to try to like build something out of it, but this is great because it all runs like in the context of your home automation system. Like they run it for you and it just, it just works. Like I don't have to deal with it anymore. Once I put those rules into place, it just worked. Um, so I did have to switch out the timer for a switch for the whole house fan. Um, so that it was, a, it was, it's a Z wave switch that I can control. Um, so yeah, I have one, one of these is for the, is for running the house fan. One is for equalizing the house temperature. And then the other one is the one that checks the inside and outside temperature. It's sort of like the house fan one, except what it does is it remembers the state. You also have some state management in there. It remembers uh, whether or not our, op- our, our windows are open or closed. Um, cause they're not automatic or anything, but it actually sends us a notification um, in the morning, you know, we don't know at which time it starts getting hotter outside than on the inside. Um, so when that actually happens in the script, it will actually send us a notification saying close the windows. And then later in the day, it'll tell us when to open the windows. So we actually get the maximum amount of time that we can keep our windows open at night to, to pull in all the cold air. Cause here in Seattle, even when it's like, uh, we had some days that were in the eighties, um, inside, or as I say, um, at night, we were hitting, it was in the fifties. So, you know, we, we have plenty of cool air. <laughs> you just have to, you have to capture it and claim it. Uh, and as long as you hang on to it, then, uh, then you're good to go. So really the minimum that you need is you need a smart things hub, hub I, for hundred bucks. And then yep. you need some stuff that can connect to it. That's either controls things or is sensors just to yep. get some things. And then you can control it all with these groovy files that run off of their infrastructure. Exactly. Yeah. And they, and they tend to interface with, with just about everything. Like you can go out there and see all the things that they talk so to. So it would probably my, talk to my nest. 
Okay, so <laughs> did I, did I tell you the drama with that? No, you didn't. So so I bought a Nest this time. I had a radio thermostat, which was like this open thing. I thought it was a great concept, and I was it was just frustrating because I'm like, oh well, it's not. Everybody talks about Nest all the time, and Nest, you know, talks to everything. Here's the thing: they have a horrible like terms of service for their API, so most companies like can't touch their stuff just because because of the terms of service around their API. Like they're just. That's just the way they are. Okay. Hmm. So <laughs> smart things has to do this little thing where they're like, yeah, we don't talk to nest. Um, we did write some code that's over there um, that will do it, but it's a, you know, like we can't do it. Hint, hint, like <laughs> go use that code. So um, what you end up having to do is you, you basically take their code from GitHub and in, in that you really don't have to under, even understand the code to do this. You copy their code and you end up pasting it, pasting it into the same API dashboard that I was talking about as a device handler. And it basically gives you the ability then to add an S thermostat and you get like a nice, you know, you get, you can control it and read it because it's pretty easy. That, that's the beautiful thing about smart things is a framework for talking to things and controlling things. So um, you, you put uh, a switch on your whole house fan because you had to, yep. but mine's integrated in on my nest thermostat. So if I copy and paste that file, I should have access through nest to do that. Yeah. So what it'll do is, is let, let's say you use the whole house fan example. Um, it will ask you, it'll say, Hey, what fan should we turn on and off? And you know, as, as long as your thermostat is controlling a fan, um, it will, it will show up as a possible like output. Nice. Yeah. Which is really cool. They have like, I think there's like 80 or a hundred different device characteristics they have. There's things that can be turned on and off. Uh, there's things that can read temperature. There's things that can read humidity. There's things that can be pulled to update. Um, and that was, that was the other challenge with this too, is I, I have a, a weather, uh, uh, like sort of a, a weather virtual device on here. And for whatever reason, I don't know why smart things hasn't fixed this, but they, any kind of weather outdoor widget, weather widget you get on here, like they don't update. Um, you have to like manually force them to update. Why well, need the current weather to, for this thing to be meaningful? So I actually wrote, um, it's actually built into one of my smart apps. I don't remember which one it was in. Uh, I think it was in the open close, uh, the windows, uh, just because of that one, I needed a, the outdoor temperature. I actually have a timer in there that fires every 15 minutes and it talks to that other one. It says, um, one of the inputs into that script is give me a polling device. <laughs> <laughs> and and basically if you give it a polling device, it will just call, it'll call the polling device and say, Hey, you please poll. So it's basically calling the weather widget saying, please update the weather. So anyway, I have, it's, it's been like, now that I have it all in place using the code that I have on GitHub, like it's been ultra reliable and it's been an absolute like game changer because just that notification about when the open and close the windows has changed our comfort level, equalizing the house temperature has been great. And then also running that fan at night to really maximize that. So this is really making me want to get into this more because it's like, okay, I can write some code in this browser here. And then I don't have to worry about where to host it. I don't have to worry about what I actually maintain or anything like that. And if any sensors die or I swap anything out, I just go into the settings and I say, you know what? This is actually the new temperature sensor and this is what you're going to control. And that's it. So I like it. So it sounds like it's pretty developer friendly, but what, what, yes. what are your uh, opinions on how long it's going to stay around? Because there have been other, uh, things out for home automation and stuff like that that have just all of a sudden up and gone one day so i mean we're at we're still at the stage where you know yeah 
that well, those were specialized. Yeah, those were specialized things, and I, I I think that whole way of doing things is is just a losing proposition. That that's why they're gone. Um, I think that Nest's attitude is going to hurt them in the long term. Um, smart things. It 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 doesn't. It's very unopinionated. It does. It wants to talk to everything. Period. Um, if you have anything that can be read from or controlled, you can write an adapter for it. If you wrote, if you built your own thing, um, you can control it. If it's just IP based or whatever, if it's Wi-Fi, it doesn't matter. They want to talk to it and you can write the code to make that happen. So there's only a couple companies that do that. So I think Wink is another one. And then I think I saw something at Lowe's. I don't know if they're yet another one, uh, but, uh, smart things is owned by Samsung. Um, Samsung is making a huge IOT play. So I think, I think we got that. So, so this isn't a little rinky dink company. This has got like a huge company behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I don't know. They've been around for years. Um, yeah, owned by a big company. So I don't know. I guess I'm pretty confident that they're going to stay around. Um, and then I know we talked before about like my security cameras online, but, um, I, you know, since we're talking about home automation, I did want to talk about that some more, um, cause I'm not sure how much I talked about some of the alerting in that. So I use software called blue Iris and, um, I've, I've, I dove into that a little bit more and I was really underutilizing blue Iris. So, um, they have, you can obviously, you know, record whenever you see motion, but they also have the, this, this concept of triggers, which that's what actually triggers the recording of motion. But then there's this concept of alerts and alerts can be even more sophisticated. Um, and then I've also set up geofencing and I'll explain why I'm jumping around here, but I set up geofencing. So basically our, our security, um, camera system knows when I'm home, uh, it knows if it's day or night and it knows when I'm away. So, um, and when I say when I'm away, it means when me and my wife are both away because our phones are no longer near the system, uh, you know, basically geofenced. So when we are home, um, every time my kids walk out on the deck, I don't want to get some, some alarm, but, um, and then also like, you know, beside my house, I, I don't, you know, if the kids are playing there, I don't want the phone going bzz, 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 like I just don't want that. So what ends up happening is there are certain things that that send an alert to me. Like if you walk basically up, you know, 15 feet in front of my front door and you're walking toward the front door, um, my phone any time of the day will actually play a doorbell sound. Um, and, and I'll get alert on the phone and it's great. There's been so many times when I've been somewhere else. And I get that alert and I flip right away and right away I see like, here's what's going on in front of your front door. Um, you know, somebody delivering a package or whatever. That is awesome. So, so how, then, do, how does that work? I, I, I can see like it would detect something, but does, yep. does it give you like a notification where you can get that live stream or an image or, you know, what do you get with yeah, that the, alarm? Yeah. So the notification is just a regular iOS notification, but when I swipe it away to like, you know, activate it, then it opens up the app and takes me directly to that video. So screen. they have an iOS app as well. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for asking the question. Um, and then if my wife and I are both away, then it basically arms the system. So then if somebody walks in my side yard, which is in a fence, or if they're, if, if there's motion on my back, on my back, uh, the deck, um, my phone will actually like set, it'll sound like an alarm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could trigger this in with like my smart app and I could buy like an actual alarm thing, but right now I'm, my biggest issue right now is just false alarm. So we get shadows from trees on our, on our back deck. And I think we're actually just going to cut down all the trees. So that'll probably fix that problem. Um, but you know, so I get some false alarms. So we'll be going down the road and all of a sudden, and it like, you know, brings the stereo volume down. I hear, reet, reet, reet. my kids are like, what's going on? They're like all freaking out. Um, 
but it works good. You know, so I get a couple false alarms, but I guess I'd rather have it be that way than the other way. Um, so yeah, that that's, uh, you know, it, it paid to, to dive into that system and get used to that. The, the front door notification it to me is super useful. Cause I know you can buy like these different doorbells that will, you know, somebody pushes the button and you can do something real similar, but I actually get that doorbell sound before they get to the door. So, um, all of a sudden my phone will ding. And then like a second later, the front door will ring. Um, or sometimes it's like two seconds and I've already actually looked at them. You know, I can mm-hmm. see like, Oh, this is who's here. Like it's UPS. I don't have to rush to the door. Or the other day, this neighbor, I was just kind of creepy. She, uh, she walked in front of it. It did that. And then I think she was just trying to look in the window to see if we were home before she rang the doorbell. So she was just standing there. So I went and opened the door. I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, we knew that she was there. Um, so if you have somebody creepy, that's like, you know, trying to look in your windows or something like I know ahead of time. So, uh, it's, it's just super cool. So blue iris is, is the glue that makes all of that happen. So is that a subscription then, or is that something you paid? No, for? No, it's and- 60 bucks lifetime. Yeah. Well, I should, it shouldn't say lifetime 60 bucks for that version. So then version four, I've only had to go through one upgrade, uh, it used to be version three, but they usually add like so many compelling features that you want to upgrade. So. So yeah, we'll have links to some of those things in the show notes, including those scripts and the software and all that good stuff. Um, and then the last thing here that I want that I figured we'd talk about, I was like, okay, what, what could I talk about that might be interesting to people? So the last one here is just, I was trying to think if there were any kind of travel tips that I could provide for people. Um, and honestly, like I don't have a lot, but I think I can provide some insight into some things. So you can always just you know, go into Bing or Google or whatever and say, you know, travel tips. And I don't know, usually what they give you is really stupid. Um, but I'll give you a couple tips here anyway. And these are in no particular order. So the first one is whenever you're flying on an airplane and I, I see a lot of people make this mistake and they'll make it over and over again. Um, and sometimes they do it intentionally, but basically whatever, if you, if you're not in just like regular economy, if you are able to get into like comfort plus, or you get an upgrade to first class or whatever, if you can try to get a seat in the back of that section. So not in the back of the plane, but in the back of that section. So like in Delta, there's a whole comfort plus section, um, you know, get, get a seat in the back of comfort plus. And the reason is because then when, if, if you're not, if you don't get on the, you know, the plane immediately, um, you're very likely you have a whole option. You have a lot of options as far as overhead space. And I see people do this where they'll be in the front seat in like, uh, economy plus, and they'll get on the plane last and they get on the plane there and, and they have to go back like halfway the, back the plane, put their luggage on. Well, guess what? Whenever you land, you're not getting off the plane. You have to wait for everybody to get off so that you can walk back and grab your luggage uh, unless some people take mercy on you and pass it up. And uh, another thing with that, too, is a lot of times at the beginning of those sections, a lot of times that's where they'll store like things that the plane needs. Uh, like yeah. oxygen containers, <laughs> emergency supplies, or yeah. things that just the flight crew uses. Uh, I remember yep. once, I think I was actually the first person on the plane, and yeah. I grabbed the first seat in the first section. Um, luckily, <laughs> I didn't have anything on me, but the person I was sitting next to was trying to put something in, and like the entire first overhead cabin uh, container was full of stuff. Yeah. So that happens. Yeah. And those, in those bulkhead seats of the first row, if it's a bigger plane, they'll have a wall there and you won't be able to even put anything under your seat. So, you know, you could be in this nightmare situation where you can't put anything under your seat, can't put anything in the overhead, uh, you know, but you do get leg luck. <laughs> yeah. But you get leg room. That's about it. Um, another one. So I, you know, I, I, I end up, well, I travel half of what I used to, but you know, I used to travel quite a bit. Um, as far as like rewards program and I actually have a great tip, but, um, first the, 
as far as points, like you can get points through like Avis and that. And I don't know. I, I don't think I've ever gotten anything through Avis. They always give you like, oh, here's a free weekend rental as if that does me any good. Um, so I don't really have any tips there. The only points that I found that are very valuable, um, relatively speaking, are hotel points. So stick with one chain and it actually doesn't matter if you stick with Marriott, Hyatt, um, Holiday Inn, you know, they're all big and they all have hotels everywhere. So you can usually stay with them, but I'm, I'm with Marriott and I, I travel enough that whenever I travel with my family, we always get all of our hotels for free. Um, because a lot of times, you know, like I earned, man, I don't know if it was like the last year or what the exact time frame was, but like I'm sitting on over a hundred thousand points right now in there. I don't have a lot of airline miles or any of this other stuff, but I'm sitting on a hundred thousand Marriott points and that, that generally will pay for like 10 free nights, uh, at a hotel for me and my family. So, um, that's pretty significant. Plus with the the status there, I mean, you usually get free upgrades. So a lot of times I'll get a big room for 10,000 points. So, I mean, how does that work if that's something that like your company pays for travel is, can you tack on like your yep. membership then? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. You, in fact, it, it, even if, even if your company controls the entire thing, whenever you get there, just give them your number, uh, give them your number and they'll associate it whenever you. So, so that might actually just be a pro tip anyways, because even if yeah. you are doing that, it's a pain to type in that information and confirm. So. Yeah. Just, no, you should always be getting your airline points, your hotel points, um, all that stuff for sure. Um, let's see here. Ticket prices. So <laughs> my point here, you're not going to beat the system. I always love this. Oh, if you, if you buy them on a Friday at three 32 PM and you lift your left arm, like, you know, you can get like 10% off. No, this is just total crap. Um, he, here's how it works. Cause I actually worked and, and I, I'm not going to name their name, but I worked with the company that basically does the pricing for, all of the airline tickets in, in, in just about the entire world. They, they pretty much own that market. They here, here's how it works. And it, and it's so obvious how it works too. It is really just supply and demand, but it's more than that. It's supply and demand over time. So there's a curve of how full they want the plane to be on any particular day. If, if you're looking at a flight, that's a year from now, they probably only care if they sold one seat at this point, because they have a whole year to sell the rest of the plane, right? As you get closer, that, that, curve goes up exponentially the day before that flight. They want to have all those seats sold, for example. Now, wherever they are on that curve, if they're above or below it, as far as number of seats sold changes the pricing. So how are you going to guess where that curve is? Um, you know, there's, I know Google travel tries to guess it. Um, you know, it, it can sort of tell, you know, based on just like giant trends, but I don't know. You're not really going to beat the system. They, they, they also, they do take into account every possible signal. So, um, you know, whatever they can do to figure out how much money they can get out of you. So I've heard of people, you know, using incognito mode on a PC. Cause there was that whole shenanigans about, you know, if you're on a Mac, you know, you can pay more for airline tickets, um, things like that. You know, that that's, that's what I would say would always be a good idea to try and, um, you know, send the signals that, that, mean that you don't want to pay a lot for, for a ticket. Um, keep watching. And there's also sites that you can go to, to set up price alerts so that you can see whenever the prices drop, uh, below a certain threshold or whenever they get to a really good price. So, you know, do that if you actually have some time. Um, but you might still get screwed over by that. Like there might be a good price now and it might go up the, the entire time. So it's, uh, it's just really hard to tell. 
Um, th- this, I don't know, barely counts as a tip, but um, pre-check and global entry. So just to describe what those are, whenever you get to the airport and if you want to avoid that crazy long line and you don't want to have to take all your liquids out and your shoes off and all that good stuff, uh, if you go and get pre-check, it's about, I think it's $85 or maybe it's 80. Um, you can, you can whiz right through that and, and just go through the metal detector and all that good stuff. Um, it only takes like 15 minutes to get it. So, you so know, how do you do that? Fly a lot. Go get it. Uh, you have to go to certain airports. If you search for pre-check, you'll see that process, but you go in, they take your fingerprints and they, they basically the FBI does a, a background check. Um, and they hand that over to the TSA. The TSA gives you a number. And then whenever you fly, uh, or with, whenever you book your tickets, um, or you have an account with like Delta or whoever you give them what's known as your K your known traveler number, your KTN. Um, and then you will get pre-check on your tickets. Um, there's also something known as global entry. If you're going to be flying international, use global entry because it'll get you in the country super quick. You can skip these. Like I, I came in one time from Switzerland. There were hundreds of people in line. Um, and, um, uh, the, the coworker I was flying with, he had global entry and he got through in 10 minutes. It took me over an hour. So absolutely worth it. If you're coming in from out of the country, global entry includes pre-check. So if you think you're going to do international travel, just get global entry and then you'll basically get both. Uh, my next tip, if you're, if you're flying international and I've seen this happen, like look at how full the plane is. If the plane isn't full and I've run into this a couple of times. So I, I, on going to Australia there and back, it was very empty. And this is where I learned this. Cause on the way there, I was in a row with some other people and, uh, some people had an entire row to themselves and they got to lay down for the entire flight <laughs> and sleep on a 12 hour flight. So on my way back, I noticed that the plane wasn't very full. So I actually requested, I said, can you put me in a row that has nobody in it? Uh, and they said, sure. So I had three seats coming back from Australia. And basically the time we were flying was, uh, overnight in my, um, um, U S time zone. So I ended up laying down and there was no turbulence. So I didn't even have to wear a seatbelt. So I laid down with blankets and I slept for eight hours. <laughs> so if you can do that, you know, it's, you know, kind of a rare tip, but if you can take advantage of that, do that. Uh, here's one trick that, that I've heard from somebody. If you're flying with one other person, um, and there are three seats next to each other, you don't book them next to each other. One of you have, one of you book the aisle and one of you book the window. If, if there is an empty seat, whenever you, you know, whenever you get on the plane, like people, the, the, the middle seats always fill up last. So if the middle seat is still available, when you get on, boom, you have three, you have three seats for two people. If somebody actually sits there, either one of you can say, Hey, would, do you want to switch with me? And of course they're going to, because nobody likes the middle seat. So there's, you have nothing to lose. Best case, you get extra room. Worst case, you end up with what you would have had anyway. Uh, so that's kind of a neat trick for you. Um, let's see here. Oh, it's, it, did you put this yep. in here? Skip the rest, Carl. Actually, there's there is. I have to I have to talk about this last one here because um, this is a big deal. So this is a, there's a credit card that came out about a week ago, and I'll I'll try to keep this short and sweet. It's a credit card that came about a week ago. People are flipping out over this card. If you are a traveler, you should get this card. So he, I'll give you the downside up ahead or ahead of time because you're going to freak out. Four hundred and fifty dollar annual fee. Okay. But the card is still absolutely worth it. So you get every year, they give you a $300 annual travel credit. So if you pay for hotels or flights or whatever, they will give you, uh, they'll immediately credit back that money. So the, basically the annual fee then is 150. Um, and then I'll, I'll go over just some of the quick things you get free pre-check or global entry every four years with this. So they will pay for it. So I was talking about that early. This card will actually pay for that for you. You get free lounge access at all the airports 
and they give you a hundred thousand points for signing up, which is basically if you redeem those points for travel ends up being well over $1,500 worth of uh, bonus. So in the first year of this thing, you get over $2,000 worth of, uh, worth of bonus stuff, uh, for that $450 annual fee. Uh, okay. So that I will just leave it at that for the, Oh, that is the chase Sapphire rewards card. So we'll have to, we'll have to link to that application. Unfortunately, they don't have like a referral, (laughs) uh, (laughs) but it is a heck of a car. So I've signed up. I'm just waiting for mine to arrive. Okay. Carl, what we have five minutes. What else you want to go over here? So we have a few dev tips of the week. I know, uh, last episode I kind of skated out on it. So I've made up for it with having several. So the first one (laughs) is, uh, feature queries in CSS. So a lot of times you might use something like modernizer to like in JavaScript, figure out if a feature exists on a browser. And then if it does enabling it, well, the problem is, is that runs, that's a script that has to load. And then that all has to happen before the CSS can be properly implemented. So what you can do in uh, the newer browsers is use at supports in CSS. So you can see in CSS if it supports it and then it'll conditionally apply that CSS. So that's not just useful to like turn on that feature or not. But um, one of the things you might want to do is if the browser supports uh, accessing the first letter, then you might want to make it big and change the color and maybe add a margin to it. That way you can make it look like on uh, like uh, a book that's been manually formatted. You can give it that like a, a just a giant, you know, leading letter to the paragraph. But if it doesn't support that, it'll just look like a normal regular size letter. And you don't want it like orange and have an extra margin if you can't make it, you know, select it properly. So that's what's really cool that you can do with this is um, without that JavaScript overhead, which JavaScript isn't bad, but if we can minimize that, uh, CSS is just blazingly fast if you can apply it right away. And yeah, and it's declared. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really cool is it's like uh, supported in Firefox and Chrome and Opera for like forever. It's in all of the versions of Edge um, and it's in the newer versions of iOS, Safari and Android. So um, it's something that most modern browsers can handle. Uh, Of course, IE can't, but um, it's just something that you should probably take a look at if you're not using and once you just start using it, you'll probably start uh, using it all the time. Okay. Next tip. Next tip. Uh, for UWP apps, um, one of the things that you can't really do too easily is log something out to a console. A lot of times you might just do a console.write line in, in, in code somewhere, but you can't do that. So somebody else built uh, a service that essentially does that using app services and the remote systems API. You can just hook into it, do a console.out, and it'll redirect all that to this application, which you'll have running at the same time. So you'll have that app running and your app. And whenever it sees that that app is up, it'll just marshal those things over. So where did you find, did you find this through me? No, I did not. Uh, Okay. This guy's on my team. That's why I asked. Okay. Yeah. No, I did. I did not know that. Um, (laughs) That's a cool coincidence. Yeah. So obviously I'm a windows developer MVP and this kind of made the circles in my little realm. So, yep. Okay, pretty cool. cool. And the last thing is, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I've been super into machine learning and there's a PDF that Microsoft came out uh, basically that'll help you get up on the basics of machine learning. So if that's something that you're interested in as well, uh, check out the show notes, download the PDF and uh, it'll show you how to do it in Azure. 
Okay, cool. And pick a number between one and four, inclusive, Carl. Four. Okay. Would you? Ra- you might have done this one, but that's okay. <laughs> Wait, this is so bad. Would you rather get a paper cut on your tongue or have a booger in your nose all that you can't reach? You can't quite reach all day. Uh, I can't do paper cuts, so I, I'd have to do the booger, man. <laughs> so you're going to pick the booger. Okay. So what about you, Jason? Pick one and read it. Okay. Uh, let's see. Which one do I want here? Uh, I'll pick one that's really tough. Okay. How's that sound? I'll pick number two. And I yes, I know that I know the question. Would you rather always have to pick your nose while talking to someone or always spit on people when you speak to them? Uh, I guess I'd pick the spitting because it would bring up less questions. And there was just that funny skit where they were like, blub, blub, they were spitting on each other. I can't remember what that was on. It, might have been, it was probably like Saturn Live or something like yeah, that. Plus, you can pass it off as being something that just happens. Yeah. Instead just happens, of like, man. you got like a finger up your nose or something. You know, yeah. Okay. So where can people find you, Carl? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at twitter.com slash ytechie. So it was good talking to you, Carl. Likewise. <laughs>